Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this beautiful Sunday you've given to us. We thank you for all the many ways you provided for us, led us, protected us this week, given us comfort where we needed comfort and peace where we needed peace. We thank you for your sovereignty over our lives. We thank you for your word, that it gives us promise after promise after promise. We thank you for making us your children through the death and resurrection of your son. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We had our homecoming Sunday last week with God being very good to us and giving us a beautiful day of weather, worship, and fellowship. And you remember that I mentioned that the idea of homecoming uh, is usually connected to the upcoming holiday season, uh, but that we have our homecoming meaning around the same time that schools are having their homecoming events. Similar to that, a lot of schools will have pep rallies uh, designed to try to get the student body fired up for that fall's sports season. Now, this may seem a little strange at first, but this morning's message to the oppressed, the kicked around, the broken, carries with it a similar feeling of the encouragement of a pep rally. But the point of it is not to just get us fired up for the sake of excitement, but it's to direct us to where our encouragement must come from. We'll see how all this connects as we make our way through this message this morning. A few weeks ago, we talked about the famous verses in James chapter 1, counting it all joy when we encounter various trials. Now this week, we fast forward to the very last chapter in that book, chapter 5, where James includes the other book end side, which directly connects with what we talked about in James 1. The people James is writing to in this letter, some of them have been kicked around a lot. We see one reference to this persecution in James 2, 6 through 7. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? The poorer members of James's scattered church have been mistreated by the richer members of society who are dragging them into court for their faith. If this weren't physically persecuting them in this, if they weren't physically persecuting them in this way, they were verbally abusing the believers by mocking Jesus, the one they had given up everything to follow. In addition, it may have been some of these poorer believers that were hired by their richer brothers in Christ to work for them, and then they were cheated out of their rightful pay that, uh, in uh, James chapter 5. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been held, withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The message in these two verses is to the oppressed. It's to the mistreated. It's to the abused and the misunderstood and the ones in pain. It's to the ones who have been cheated and taken advantage of. It's to the ones uh, suffering intense spiritual warfare. It's to the ones who had their innocence stripped away in their formative years or endured some kind of trauma in their pasts. It's to the ones who don't think that anyone could ever know the extent of pain in their lives. We're all broken people to one degree or another. So you know what? This message is to all of us. 
And what are James's words to those who are suffering? The first part of verse 7 in chapter 5. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to James chapter 5. Uh, if you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to James chapter 5. If you find in the New Testament the bigger book of Hebrews, it's the very next book following that. James chapter 5, verse 7, the first part of it. We read, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. It's often joked about, uh, probably overused, uh, by those studying the Bible, uh, that when you come across this word, therefore, you need to first figure out what the therefore is there for, right? Okay. Generally, what James is talking about here, be patient until the coming of the Lord, is directly connected with what he says all the way at the beginning of this letter, which we covered a few weeks ago in, in chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perseverance is another word for endurance. And, that word, and what word is very similar along the same theme as these two words? The word patience. James is not advocating for the absence of trials. There are always going to be trials because trials are necessary for our growth. Some go through horrific, traumatic trials whose reasons are only known to our Heavenly Father, but the purpose is still the same. It's to grow us. Trials make us stronger. Trials teach us so we can teach others what we learned. Trials increase our faith so that we can be made to lack nothing and to have real and true peace. But all along the way, there are a lot of questions. If we've been abused, we may wonder why the abuser has not been punished yet. We may wonder why God gave us the parents he gave us. We wonder why our loved one had to die so soon. We wonder why we have to seemingly be the only one going through severe and intense spiritual warfare. To those of us, James says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient for what? Be patient for God to bring about what he's promised to bring about. Even if the person who has abused you remains unpunished here on earth, they will not escape God's justice. God promises this when the Apostle Paul says this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Not taking your own revenge against the person, but waiting, being patient for God's justice towards that person is part of being patient until the coming of the Lord. The pain associated with your past will not always plague you. It will not always threaten to overwhelm you and destroy you. There will be a day when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. You will not even remember your pain. You will not remember your sadness or depression or intense emotional pain or psychological pain or loss. It will all be wiped away. It will all pass away. 
But if you're still sitting here and breathing, we're not there yet. So we still have to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Those spiritual battles and temptations and addictions that you are constantly dragged back into and you don't feel like you will ever have complete victory over, one day, all of those will have nothing to do with you anymore. You will be completely disconnected from them. There's going to be a day when the enemy will not be whispering temptation and discouragement and defeat into your ear anymore. There's going to be a day when this will happen. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And do you think he's ever going to be able to mess with anybody after that? Not at all. Ultimately, there's going to be a day when this will happen. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. There will be a day when there will no longer be any curse. There will no longer be that curse of sin. But for now, the curse is still here. And because of that, we must still be patient until the coming of the Lord. We must still weather things. We must still experience death. We must still endure through the most difficult of times. But we know what's coming, and that gives us hope. That gives us the strength to continue to be patient. Now, what does that mean, being patient? It's been noted that the phrase, be patient, comes from a compound of two words. The first meaning long, and the second meaning temper. So the phrase, be patient, literally means being long-tempered. Or setting your mind and heart to live for the long run, the long haul. It brings with it of training yourself for a marathon, rather than several sprints. It means to keep your focus on the big picture. It means to remember what's coming up ahead and what God will bring to pass, but making that inform how your life is now. When you stop and think about what James really means when he says, be patient, it's actually life-changing. No longer are we to process life through the mindset of, let me just survive this upcoming work week until I can get to the weekend and then unwind. No longer are we enchained to the mindset that we need to push through until the next vacation or the next concert or the next date or the next thing we can be looking forward to. And this is why. What if you didn't have any of those things? Could you still live life? We're all setting ourselves up for failure if we base our lives and the peace and happiness we derive from it on the next good thing. Because we all know that life is ever-changing, isn't it? The only constant we have that we can base anything in this life on are the promises of God. Those will never change. If everything we know our lives to be, with everything and everyone we have in our lives, was suddenly ripped away from us, the only thing we would have left would be the promises of God. So therefore, those are the only things worth basing the way we live our lives on now. That's why James instructs his readers who were being pushed around by others oppressing them. And God is telling us today that we all have to take a step back. 
and direct the mindset of our lives onto the long haul. We have to prepare ourselves and allow ourselves to be trained for a marathon. The Apostle Paul references this exactly when he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. We are to understand that this life we're living is a marathon. We have to see that our lives are building up endurance to run that marathon. See, it's not run really fast, stop, take a nap, wake up and then run really fast and stop again for a four-course dinner, then run really fast, stop, not run for another 10 years, and then pick up the race again. If the race is run that way, no endurance will be built up. If life is thought of in that way, no patience for staying in it for the long haul will be developed. You might wonder, why does my life seem to be one trial after another? Why can't I just get a break? Why can't I just coast for a while? Because this is the way that life as a believer in Jesus is supposed to be especially as sinful people in a sin-filled world. We're supposed to have patience for the long haul developed in us. We're supposed to have endurance built up in us, and the way that that endurance and patience is grown in us is through the trials we endure. That's why, as Paul says, we're not to be distracted by the things of this world. We're to allow and perpetuate self-control and lasting discipline in our bodies and lives. That's not a thing we're to do begrudgingly or under duress. It's what we're supposed to be doing as our lives are developed in this race of life and faith. So James says, do not let these times of pain and abuse and confusion and desperation and emotional, mental, and spiritual torment determine who you are. Those things are not who you are. They are meant to train you and strengthen you. An Olympic runner does not aspire to remain at the local gym forever training for the Olympics but never going forever allowing that training period to be one to, to be who they are. No, an Olympic runner takes that training, what has developed their strength, and takes it with them to the Olympics. It's part of what makes them stronger. It's part of what builds endurance in them. It's part of what makes them competitive, but it's not who they are. They only use those difficult and trying times to help them win the race they're running. As James says, see, see all these difficult times as truly what they are. Things to build strength and endurance in you and see your life as what it is, a long-term marathon. Be patient. As one author put it, have a long fuse. Remember the promises of God. 
And as Paul says, run in such a way that you intend on winning that race. Next, James uses uh, imagery that would have been familiar to his recipients to greater and lesser degrees to further illustrate his point. Second part of verse 7. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. In this part of the world, Palestine and the ancient Mediterranean world, there were generally two periods of rain. The first period of rain, the early rain, usually occurred in the autumn and winter months. These rains accounted for three-quarters of the region's entire rainfall. These were necessary to start the germinating and sprouting processes of the plants, but what the agrarian people of those regions really looked forward to were the late rains, which usually came in March and April, which were necessary to be ready and, and ripen the crops that would, have been, that would be harvested in the late spring and summer months. The main crops that these rains impacted were the important ones. Wheat would be harvested from mid-April through the end of May, and barley was harvested in March. In Greece, the grain harvests would be in June and July in Italy, but in all these areas, both the early rains and especially the late rains were required in order to have a good harvest. In other words, a farmer could not get hasty and harvest his crops before the late rains came, or they wouldn't be as ripe as they should have been. In addition, the farmer couldn't determine, oh, you know what, I don't think these late rains are coming. And harvest without the faith of knowing that those late rains were going to come. As James is talking about the coming of the Lord, he's reminding his readers that everything hasn't been right in the world yet by way of Christ's return because it isn't time for the harvest yet. The late rains also have to come. More believers have to be brought in the kingdom. And Christ is not going to return until all the people who are supposed to believe in him do so. Obviously, some of those people wouldn't be born for another 2,000 years because here we are. The Apostle Peter talks about this very same thing when he says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When Peter was saying this, it was within the context of the end times and the return of Christ. When James says next that the coming of the Lord is soon, it doesn't mean that he was wrong. Peter says that a day is like a thousand years to God. All this time passing before Christ's return is not because God's forgotten about us or he's being lazy or he doesn't fulfill his promises. It's because of his grace. He's waiting for Christ to return until all those he has determined to commit their lives to Christ have done so. I remember hearing a pastor reference this verse, and he said, and I can only paraphrase the gist of it, the astounding thought is that the last person that needs to accept Christ before he returns could be walking this earth anywhere right now, and that person needs only to be told about the gospel, accepts it, and then all of a sudden, Jesus could return. 
That is a crazy thought, but an inspiring one, isn't it? What if the last person who needs to accept Christ as his or her king and savior before Jesus returns is the person in another country who you feel God is calling you to be a missionary to or your neighbor or your friend or even the family member who lives in the same house as you? Verse 8 in James chapter 5. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Just as the farmer has to be patient until the late rains come and the harvest can finally happen, you too need to be patient, James says. It will happen, as Peter says. It may not be on our timetable, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. As some will mock God that Jesus is never going to return, the Bible is very clear, Jesus is going to return. And as Jesus has said already, we all better be ready for it. That's part of allowing yourself to be prepared for a marathon. We can't be lazy or let our morals get lax or stop caring about spending time with God or teaching our families the word of God or coming together as people of God for strengthening. For that's exactly what James references here in verse 8, strengthen your hearts. The word strengthened in the Greek is related to giving support to a plant in the ground. The support is firmly set in the ground to provide strength and support to the plant. Tomato and grape trellises keep those plants growing strong, straight, and tall. Naturally, our hearts are not strong on their own. They falter. They, fa they fall. They fail. So something outside of them needs to come inside of them and strengthen them like a trellis. Guys following me so far? Okay. How are our hearts strengthened? First and foremost, they are strengthened by the Holy Spirit, who is the trellis of our hearts. But unlike a vegetable trellis that merely comes around the plant to support it, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and supports us from the inside and not only supports us, but changes us and actually makes us stronger. Psalm 138.3 says, On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Know that you are not supposed to be the one to conjure up all the strength to face the trial you're in now. As the Bible clearly says, cry out to him for his strength and he will answer you and he will empower you. You might be sitting here and thinking, I need God's strength, but I don't know the first step in getting it. Well, the very first step is to become a child of God first. 
Only those who have received God's forgiveness through their acceptance of Jesus' substitution as taking the death penalty for their sin and in love committing the rest of their lives to growing in their faith in Jesus can be right enough with him to be strengthened by him. As children of God, he will not hold back his strength, power, hope, and transformation of everything in your life. As Jesus said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? The Lord is coming back. The day when everything will be made right is coming. Justice will be rendered. Hold on. Change your perspective to continually be trained for a marathon. Be patient and be strengthened by the strength of God's power. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of strength. I pray that if there's anybody here who has not yet repented of their sins and taken you as Savior and King, I pray they would do so right now. And for all of us, especially as we are going through trials, I pray that we would cry out to you for the trellis of the Holy Spirit to embolden us, to strengthen us and fill us with your power to continue to run this race that is set before us with our eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. May you strengthen us. As we transition our hearts to coming before the Lord's table, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we transition to coming before the Lord's table.